The Martians are coming. The Martians are coming. Invaders from Mars. They're coming. They're coming. That was the cry of terrified citizens on October 30th, 1938, clutching their children and running out of their houses, according to newspaper articles from the time. They had heard it on a news report on the radio, the new technology radio they were listening. The, broadca- the broadcaster described it, uh, the invasion, uh, the institution of martial law that had just taken place. Um, they were beginning to speculate during the broadcast about Martian technology. And at one point, you can actually hear the radio station like taking damage and sustaining casualties. <laughs> and everyone's freaking out. And the, the, the broadcast eventually climaxes um, by describing the devastation that has been wrought on New York City by, Marsh- by Martian alien forces. Um, about two-thirds of the way through the broadcast, listeners who had resisted arming themselves with rifles and grabbing food and fleeing with their children <laughs> into who knows where. It's the Martians. What are we going to do? Um, they were eventually greeted with a broadcaster's uh, voice announcing that they were listening to a CBS dramatization of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. <laughs> the audience had been listening to science fiction being performed, not news being reported. It was science fiction being performed, not the news being reported. They had misunderstood the genre, what they were experiencing. They totally didn't get it, and they suffered because of it. The question that we're coming to... This week, we're in week two of our series where we're exploring the book, uh, the last book of the Bible. You can turn there if you've got a paper Bible, um, or you can load it up on your phone. The book of Revelation that causes much fear and trepidation in lots of people. Um, It is a a unique book. Um, It caused me a lot of fear and trepidation when I was um, younger. Um, The question is what are we experiencing when we... That's exactly the question we're confronted with when we come to the book of Revelation. Last week, uh, Joe, uh, Pastor Joe started us up, off... Um, thinking in this direction. He, uh, he talked about how a lot of times we associate um, the book of Revelation with conspiracy theories, right? Right? Uh, we, we flip through... We flip to the, Bi- the Bible's final pages and we find like beasts and dragons and plagues and armies. And uh, oh, and eventually in uh, chapter uh, 13, we find the number 666. <laughs> and, and some people uh, say, I have no idea what I'm experiencing here. I have no idea what this is about. And so I'm not going to think about it. While other people say, I am absolutely certain I know what this is talking about. It's talking about Russia and China and cryptocurrency and microchips. And you know what? Bill Gates is probably in there at this point too. It's like one group of of people, like they don't want to think about revelation at all. And another group of people makes up for it by thinking some really strange things about revelation. And so in this series, as we're going through it over the next uh, couple of months, we're, we're hoping to help you, um, help all of us as a community, understand what we are experiencing when we engage with the book of Revelation. Um, as we began last week, Joe actually, he, he read the uh, entire chapter, first chapter for us, and, and had us just sit in it and, and, and reflect on it. And so today, 
What I want to do is I want to um, walk back through that first chapter. I want to walk through the entire first chapter um, and see if we can get clarity on exactly this question. This one question, what are we experiencing when we hear slash read slash think about Revelation? And I think as we um, I think chapter one actually unfolds and gives us um, some really good like points that we can kind of drill into the rock and that we won't fall to our death as we're, as we're reading uh, Revelation. It gives us some anchors. It gives us some, um, uh, so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. I think it's going to help lay us a strong foundation for um, the coming weeks and the coming months. So uh, you're going to get it both barrels today. Is that Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. We're good. Okay. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come and speak right now. Um, you, we don't need Brett. We don't need Brett. We need, uh, we need gospel. We need gospel according to Revelation. And so um, we ask that you would come and speak right now because we're desperate to hear from you. So come speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So Revelation chapter 1. Verse 1, a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. Christ made it known by sending it through his angel to his servant, John. Okay, we've got to stop right here. One verse in, and he's already stopping. Man, this is going to be a long sermon. No, it's, it's, it's pretty normal length, but, uh, we, but we do need to stop right here, and, but we actually need to focus on the first three words of, of the book right here. We, it'll be up here on the screen. Um, the apocalypsis, apocalypsis Jesu Christu, the apocalypsis of Jesus Messiah. The, the first word, uh, it'll be up here on the screen in just a second. The first word right here uh, in Greek is actually where the book of Revelation gets its name, apocalypsis. Apocalypse is how we a lot of times say it uh, in English. Um, but when I say apocalypse, what, do you, what comes to your mind? Apocalypse, five points if it was uh, The Walking Dead. <laughs> 10 points if it was the desert wastelands of Mad Max, whether it is the machines that have taken over in Terminator or the Matrix, or um, whether it's the apes that have taken over in Planet of the Apes. That's usually what we mean when we talk about uh, something being apocalyptic or, or post-apocalyptic. That's the, when we would use the word, right? In normal parlance and normal conversation. In fact, if you look up in an English dictionary, apocalypse, this is the sort of thing that you're going to find. It, it has to do with the, the end of the world, is what English uh, tr- dictionaries say. But I'm reminded of Inigo Montoya in uh, The Princess Bride. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. The, the end of the world is not what apocalypsis meant in antiquity. It's not what it meant. <laughs> An apocalypse is what happens... Um, on the price is right. It's what happens on the price is right when curtain number two gets drawn back and we suddenly see that brand new car. Uh, an apocalypse is what happens when you play peekaboo with a baby. When you, aren't you a cute baby? Aren't you? Where did they go? Where did they go? Apocalypse! That's, that's, that's what it means. Look, I'm not, and, I'm not, and I'm not exaggerating. Apocalypse literally means like to unveil. 
It means to uncover. It hints the name of the book, Revelation. It's like you see something. Revelation begins in its first three words with a spoiler. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you from the very outset what is behind curtain number two. This is the apocalypse of Jesus. This is the apocalypse. Some translations like uh, the NIV, if you happen to have that, um, will translate it, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the revelation from Jesus. But the better translation, you'll have to trust me, the better translation of the genitive right here is of Jesus because it leaves both possibilities of, of uh, meaning open to us. This is, yes, it's an unveiling, a peekaboo from Jesus, but it's also, it's of Jesus. It is an unveiling of Jesus. And so, pin anchor number one, we could say it like this, Revelation reveals Jesus. Revelation reveals Jesus. That's foundation one. If we are reading Revelation in a way that we cannot recognize the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who we read about in the four Gospels, dining with sinners, loving them, dying on behalf of his enemies, suffering to the point of crucifixion, betrayal, and death— to redeem the world. If you cannot recognize that picture of Jesus in the way that you are reading Revelation, then you are probably not reading Revelation in the most faithful way possible. Revelation reveals Jesus, but it does so. This will bring us to our second anchor. Um, rock climbers, am I saying that right as an anchor? Is that what I don't know? I don't, I don't know. I'm just making stuff up up here. Uh, but, uh, Revelation reveals Jesus in a way that most of us are not familiar with. Um, we could get at it this way, if you want to think about it this way, wrap our heads around it. War of the Worlds is a particular, um, is a particular genre, right? It's a particular style of telling a story. It's, what, it's science fiction. It's a genre that all of us are familiar with. We all know sci-fi, right? Whether it's Minority Report or Blade Runner or Star Trek, we all know sci-fi. But did you know, and we'll have it right up here, um, did you know that there are other ancient documents uh, besides Revelation in, uh, from the first century where you have cosmic hidden mysteries of heaven getting revealed to someone in a vision. That and these documents are critiquing injustices that are taking place on a sociological, economic, geopolitical level um, in the present. And they're promising that divine justice is going to come in the future. And that the the promise of this future and the critique of the present in this vision often gets expressed through pictures and symbols and colors and numbers and mythological imagery like dragons. <laughs> Do we know this? This is a, it's a genre. It's a, documents like One Enoch or Two Baruch or, or four, Fourth Ezra. Uh, you could Google any of these right now, like on your, like their, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, copy, they're not copyrighted. You can, like, some of the translations, you can load them up right now if you want with a Google search. Um, there's also, like, the second half of the book of Daniel uh, from chapter 7 through 12. A lot of parts of the book of Zechariah, some parts of the book of Isaiah that are, um, there are other ancient writings, is my point, where heavenly mysteries get revealed 
verse one, through like a heavenly messenger, like an angel that we discover in verse one, bringing, that, that's what, and that's what's going to unfold in the story of Revelation. Um, it's a certain style of telling a story, of writing. Um, it's an ancient genre, is what we're reading. Um, scholars, because you've got to call it something, you know, so we all have a way of talking about it, people call it apocalyptic literature, is what they call it. And so, th- this isn't too overwhelming. So the word apocalypse can mean peekaboo, um, but apocalyptic is also this kind of writing. It's like science fiction. It's like a, um, it's a, a certain style of writing. These documents... that. Revelation, in particular, is written in a way that doesn't just communicate information. It also, like with pictures and poetry and images, it's communicating emotion is what it's doing. It's meant to, like, sweep us up and make us feel the weight and the significance and the gravity of what is being talked about. And so you don't need to become an expert in apocalyptic literature to understand Revelation. Um, it does help, help to have a guide um, and to engage some of it, but um, you don't need to become an expert in that or science fiction or anything else. Um, but what we do need to recognize when we're watching a movie or reading a book is what is the kind of style that we are engaging. Um, so we could say it this way, second pin in the rock. Revelation reveals Jesus... Uh, It'll be up here on the screen. Revelation reveals Jesus in apocalyptic style. That is the genre in which it's operating. It it reveals Jesus in a particular kind of way. This is first century apocalyptic literature. An angel, verse 1, brings to John a hidden mysteries of God. It gives him a peekaboo, an unveiling, a revelation, and get ready because we're about to see some wild stuff. So onward and upward, verse two. Um, it's not all going to be, we're not going to, at some point, it's, it's heavy on the first half and then we go downhill on the second half of the sermon. Trust me. This is a revelation of Jesus Messiah, Christ, through his angel to John, verse two, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ, including all that John saw. Favored is the one who reads the words of this prophecy out loud. And favored are those who listen to it being read. Hey, that includes you. Uh, And keep what is written in it, for the time is near. All right, we made it through two more verses. Man, we are rolling now. We are gathered up ahead of steam. Um, This next pin in the rock um, that we want to, so we don't fall to our death, is to notice what John explicitly calls what we are reading. What does he call it? He calls it a prophecy. Prophecy. He calls it a prophecy. Revelation is a work of biblical prophecy, um, to which most of us would say, no, duh, keep going. This sermon's taking a while. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe I'm kidding. Maybe, maybe you're not. Um, but once again, I think it's Inigo Montoya. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Prophecy in the Bible is not fortune-telling. It's not. It's not crystal ball like, oh, I see the future. Prophecy and prediction are not the same thing. 
If you read through the great, the three great prophets of ancient Israel, Daniel is not one of them, side note. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And if you read through the scroll of the 12, the book of the 12, what we often call the minor prophets, looking for, if you're looking for a laundry list of like predictions, maybe you're like me, I've done that before. And you get really confused and really disappointed. You're like, what is this? It's a bunch of poetry right here. Instead, what you're going to find in the prophetic literature of the Bible is God speaking to his people. That's what a prophet is. Someone who's speaking through, he's speaking through a human being, God is, and he's calling his people to faithfulness to faithfulness right now. Like, be faithful to God. Be faithful to God. Not sometime later, but like right now. And sometimes they will talk about the future, for sure. If you keep disobeying God, then he's going to remove his protection and giant foreign army, Assyria, Babylon, someone's going to come conquer you. If you disobey, God will not let you go. He will one day bring restoration. But do you know why the future is referenced in the prophets? The future is referenced in the prophet. It's the future is mentioned to serve the present is what is what why it gets brought up. The, The prophets bring up the possibilities of the future to call the people of God to faithfulness in the present. We could say it this way. Um, the focus, uh, Biblical prophecy aims to teach obedience in the present, not trivia about the future. And that's what we want a lot of times. We want trivia about the future, but that's not the goal. The goal is, hey, will you be faithful in the present, Israel? Will you be faithful in the present, church? So yes, the future does come up sometimes in prophecy. Yes, the future does come up sometimes in the book of Revelation. But much more often, prophetic literature is using pictures and poetic language. And sometimes like, sometimes in the prophets, there'd be like really scandalous, nonviolent protests that would take place. Isaiah would walk around naked. Have you read this stuff? Good grief. Ezekiel would cook food over a campfire made of human dung just to like make it like out in the middle of the public square. Like that's really gross, bro. Why are you doing that? The prophets would use like shocking language and pictures to try to illuminate not trivia about the future, but will you be present right here, right now and be the people that God has called you to be. They're summoning, prophetic literature summons the people of God back to faithfulness in the present moment. And that's why John can say, this is actually what makes sense of uh, that really confusing part at the end of verse three right there, where John says, um, keep what, you're blessed, not just if you hear this, but you're blessed, uh, it'll be right up here on the screen, if you keep what is written in this prophecy, verse three, um, because the time is near. Like, you cannot obey a prediction, right? You can't keep a prediction, but you can obey a prophecy. You can keep a prophecy, and you need to, because um, you're going to need it. The time is near, he says. You're going to need it really, really soon to be faithfully 
following as God's people. And so the focus of biblical prophecy is about learning obedience, not learning the future. Okay? Third pen. So um, that helps us keep laying our foundation. Um, We could say it this way if we want to keep building our definition. Revelation reveals Jesus in apocalyptic style and prophetically summons us to follow him. That's what Revelation's doing. It's revealing Jesus in apocalyptic style. It's 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 a genre, and it's prophetically summoning us to follow him. We doing okay? We keep going? Okay, okay, okay. So hopefully this is helpful. Verse four, let's just go for it. Verse four, John to the seven church. Okay, we gotta stop. We gotta stop. I promise we're gonna go down the the backside quick, but John to the seven churches. Evidently, based on what we're reading right here in verse four, Revelation is also a letter. It's also a letter. And we need to take this into, we need to, after three verses, John shifts into another genre into that clues us in that something else is happening. He's writing a letter. First, you start with John. You start, that's how you start ancient letters. You start with who's writing. I'm a political, we find out in verse nine, he's a political prisoner of Rome and I'm exiled to the island of Patmos, 37 miles off the mo- of what we call modern day Turkey. Um, and then you say, when you're writing a letter, you say who it's to. Um, yeah, this is, I'm writing this letter to, uh, to seven actual, literal churches in Turkey, in Asia Minor, uh, the west coast of Asia Minor. We, you can go ahead and throw that map up if you want. Uh, verse 11 is going to also give us uh, the names of these uh, churches. Uh, and uh, you can see them right here uh, on, on the map right here. Uh, whoever John recruited to carry this document, um, it's a letter, sorry if, the, if it's small. Um, they w- would have carried this letter they would have sailed from the island of Patmos, which is actually right above the O. It's a, like kind of a seahorse-looking island right above the O. Um, in Patmos, they would have sailed 37 miles, landed in the uh, bustling seaport of Ephesus. And then they would have traveled up the coast to Smyrna. This is the order of the churches, by the way, in chapters 2 and 3. They would have hit Smyrna. And then they would have trekked up to the river town of Pergamum before heading inland to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then they're following the mountains down to Laodicea. Um, it's a letter to people, to ancient people, is it? but true to the genre that he is writing in. He's writing in a particular style, right? True to the style that he's written in, he has written to a particular number of churches, right? He chose how many churches? Seven. Yeah, he chose seven churches. It's a loaded symbolic number is what it is. In apocalyptic literature, in Revelation, it's this number like wholeness, completeness. Like John could have included um, the church at Colossae. There's a church there. Paul wrote to them. <laughs> he could have, it's right near Laodicea. It, he could have included Colossae and made it eight churches. Why are we leaving out the Colossians? Why are you doing that? They want to read this thing but he's writing to seven churches. And that's giving us a clue that Revelation is written for more than just these historic churches. John and Jesus are addressing the complete church. 
is what he's communicating with the number seven. The whole church, whenever people are following Jesus, wherever people are following Jesus, those are the people to whom Revelation speaks. And so one of uh, Pastor Joe's points last week, uh, I think of a second point, was that the Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. That's really, really relevant right here. John is, he is including us. It's seven churches, the sevenfold church, the complete whole church. But we should remember, we should remember that we are not the first people who have read this letter. The book of Revelation is for us, but it was originally written to seven historic communities. And that gives us a giant clue on how we should be interpreting this book. Because do you think, do we think that a new Christian scratching out a subsistence living as a farmer living in first century Laodicea would be encouraged by and challenged by and able to obey coded information about Vladimir Putin? Do we think that believers in first century Pergamum, who we learn in chapter 2, verse 13, we learn that they just watched their friend Antipas, is his name. He had a name. Antipas just died for following Jesus. Do we think that they are going to be encouraged by a Rubik's cube of a letter that seems to be unsolvable that's really about the United Nations and microchips? Do Any understanding of Revelation that sounds like those historic churches would have no clue what is being talked about, that probably isn't the best way to be understanding Revelation. This is ancient mail. It arrived via courier. It's in someone's mailbox. It is revealed by, inspired by Jesus, peekaboo, here I am. And it is sent through John to seven ancient communities. And if we cannot imagine the original hearers of Revelation understanding our interpretation of Revelation, like we could time travel and say, hey, this is what the book of Revelation is about. And they have no clue what we're talking about. Either one of two things needs to be rethought. Either... Jesus needs to rethink the way that he writes letters to people through John, or we need to rethink the way that we are understanding this letter. Another one in the rock, another anchor. We could say it this way, building on our definition. Revelation is ancient male that reveals Jesus in apocalyptic style and prophetically summons the church, us, to follow him. All right. I promised that we would go downhill on the second half. We're over halfway there. Um, Two observations. We'll read the rest of the chapter, and then we'll come to the table. Verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is and was and is coming and from the seven servants that are before God's, the seven spirits that are before God's throne and from Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ, the faithful martyr, the faithful witness, that's the same word, 
the firstborn from among the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, who made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and always. Amen. Look, He's actually, right here, he's uh, spliced together like uh, two different chapters of Zechariah and, um, Dan- and Daniel 7. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, apparently maybe even in this book, including those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. In Zechariah, mourning is actually um, something that leads to repentance, by the way, in Zechariah right there, the mourning. Um, this is so a Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and was and is coming, the Almighty. I, John, <laughs> I, John, your brother, who shares with you in the hardship, kingdom, and endurance that we have in Jesus. Side note, kingdom comes right in the middle of endurance and hardship. You're not necessarily doing something wrong. Kingdom's right there in the middle of all of it. The kingdom and endurance that we have in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and my witness about Jesus. I was in a spirit-inspired trance on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice that sounded significant. It sounded like a trumpet. It said, write down on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see who was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven oil lamps burning on top of seven golden stands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw someone who looked like the human one, like the son of man. He wore a robe that stretched down to his feet, and he had a gold sash around his chest. His head and, and, and hair were white, as, as white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like fiery flame. His feet were like fine brass that had been purified in a furnace, and his voice sounded like rushing water. He, he held seven stars in his right hand, and from his mouth came a, a sharp, two-edged sword. His appearance was like the sun shining with all its power. When I saw him, I, I fell at his feet like a dead man, but he put his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, now I'm alive forever and always. I have the keys of death and the grave. So write down what you have seen, both the scene now before you and the things that are about to unfold after this. As for the mystery, (laughs) it's helpful right here, these last. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, well, here's what they mean. (laughs) The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Man, by the time we get to like the end of this chapter, we just know we're in the book of Revelation, right? <laughs> like, man, that's it. That's what we're talking. The imagery like starts coming fast and <laughs> just overwhelming, like symbolic colors, gold and white, and, and then the number seven, and, and the grave apparently has keys that you can, a skeleton key, I guess. <laughs> and then... Uh, <laughs> 
and there's like fire in his eye sockets and sword coming out of his mouth. Good grief. Um, And in case any of us were skeptical that this is symbol, it's symbolic, John and Jesus include right here as the chapter ends. By the way, those seven stands, those seven lampstands, verse 20, are the seven churches. Seven churches. And that, that's going to lead us straight into chapter 2 and 3 as Jesus is going to be speaking to each one of them in turn. He's going to be turning to each stand and talking to them. We don't have time to explore the, obviously we don't have time to explore the symbolism right here in detail, but observation one of two. First, this vision is picturing Jesus. That's what it's doing. It's picturing Jesus. Um, that it calls him the, the human one, the, the son of man from Daniel 7, the one who, verse 18, it's, I was dead, but now I'm alive forever and always. And this vision has Jesus in the middle of a temple setting is what we, what we see right here. Exodus uh, describes how um, there's a stand in the tabernacle with seven lamps on it. And it illuminates the room just outside of the Holy of Holies. <laughs> it's what the, and so this is like a new temple kind of setting. You've got like all these little lamps. And Jesus is in this temple setting wearing, verse uh, 13, wearing a podores is what he's wearing. He's wearing a robe that stretches down to his feet, which is what the priest wears. It's the only time in the New Testament this word shows up. And that's the way that the word, that's the word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the word for what priests wear. But he's also, so he's a priest in a new temple setting, but he's also wearing like a golden sash in case we were confused, he's also royalty. He's, he's, a, he's a king. But then there's like this trumpet voice that's borrowing language from um, Exodus 19. Um, it's when God arrives on Mount Sinai with Israel, there's a loud trumpet. This is just this recurring detail that keeps getting louder and louder. It's the arrival of God himself. This trumpet is. And then the woolly white hair is like straight from Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 of the ancient of days. So I say all that to say, John is suddenly in the presence of Jesus who can only be described with images that are the best human images and the best God images. It's a fusion of human and divine imagery swirling together into this one figure, true God and truest humanity standing right in front of John in a single person. And this God in his new temple, this priest who is our human brother, tells him and us, do not be afraid. To which brings us to observation two and then to the table. Jesus is making us into something. Verses five and six just lays it out, says, this one, Jesus, loves us, loves us, and freed us from our sins by his blood and is making us, has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. You're loved. You're loved. 
you've been set free in the cross <laughs> to, to darkness, sin, corruption, death. And Jesus has done this through the only power in the universe, the only true power in the universe. He has done it by self-giving love. That is the only power in the universe. He's done it by his blood is what it says. And he's making us to be something. He's not just going to be in this temple by himself. He's not just going to be a king with no one in his kingdom. No, he's making us to be the kingdom. He's having us serve as his priests who invite other people. That's what priests do. They, they stand between people and God. God is love. And Revelation does not contradict that. God is love and the same love that made the world and became human to save humanity wants to make us alive with love. And so we could finish our definition this way. We could say, Revelation is ancient male that reveals Jesus in apocalyptic style and prophetically summons us to follow him. We are to embody his kingdom of self-giving love and serve as priests who bring love to the world. And that is a very different picture than what we often perceive Revelation to be about. Um, it, Revelation is often, for a lot of people, it's like a source of fear or insecurity, uncertainty. It, 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 sometimes it's used as a weapon by Christians towards the world. Hey, you, you need to... Um, it often feels like Revelation is threatening the world with violence instead of promising to save the world with love. Um, and that is not the best reading of Revelation. It's certainly not a revelation, an unveiling, a peekaboo of Jesus of Nazareth, who in chapter 5 is described as the lamb who has been slain and is on a throne, and he defeats the dragon and any beast that the powers of darkness can throw at him. At bottom, you want to know what we're experiencing as we begin the series on Revelation and as we journey through it? We are experiencing the divine unveiling that love is Lord. He's not violent. He's not angry. He says, do not be afraid. Love is Lord. Love is the victor. Love is conquering. Love is conquering. It's, and by love, he's conquering. Love wins the day. It's what Revelation is saying. And love will win over broken relationships. Whatever we've carried in here, broken relationships or broken bodies or broken minds, broken, love will win. He's going to win over darkness, over cruelty, over racism, over violence. Love will win. He's going to win over depression, over loneliness, over self-hatred, over wildfires, over coronaviruses, over hateful politicians. Love will win. Even though we spat on him and tortured him and hated him and murdered him and sinned all of our sins into 
to him, even though he was dead. And behold, he is alive forever and always. Love is winning. Love will win because love is Lord. Love is Lord and holds every power in the universe. He holds even the keys of death and Hades. And love says to you, even this morning, he says, do not be afraid. I know things are scary, but do not be afraid. I know you're lonely, but do not be afraid. I know your sin. I know, and do not be afraid. I have conquered it. I've forgiven you. I've set you free. Just follow me. You might hate yourself. You might hate what you have become, but I do not hate you. Far from it. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you even if you never follow me, but I want you to follow me because I want you alive, fully alive like me, alive. Do not be afraid. Love is Lord. And so Jesus, we come to you this morning and we confess that we don't believe this a lot of times. We think that our righteous anger is Lord. We think that getting the right person into the White House is, the, is Lord. We think that our security that we can buy with insurance or bank accounts is Lord. Help us trust you. As we come to the table, fill us with the knowledge that you love incarnate, your Lord. Help us trust you, teach us to follow you. We want to embody your love to our family, to our friends, to the people who don't share our political ideologies, to enemies who hate our country and would have us dead. We want to embody your love because love, you are Lord. And so Jesus, grant it. Feed us here at your table right now. Make us like you. We ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.